As a boy, Mel Fisher's favorite books were Robert Louis Stevenson novels like Treasure Island, stories full of lost treasure, swashbuckling pirates and Spanish galleons, gold doubloons, and pieces of eight. As Mel grew older, underwater exploration and treasure hunting became his hobby. He opened up a scuba shop and he purchased a salvage ship. He spent his vacations in the Caribbean exploring sunken wrecks and collecting coins and gathering up lost artifacts. Eventually, Mel Fisher became a full-time treasure hunter. Over the years, Mel had heard of a lost Spanish galleon named the Otocha. The ship sunk in 1622 and was thought to be carrying fabulous wealth. For 16 years, Mel searched for the Otocha. And his quest cost him dearly. He teetered on the, urge, on the verge of bankruptcy. More significantly, he lost his son and daughter-in-law in a tragic boating accident. But on July the 20th, 1985, 41 miles off of Key West, Mel found his pot of gold, finally. He picked from the ocean floor 40 tons of silver and gold. 100,000 pieces of eight, 1,000 silver bars, Colombian emeralds, a total treasure worth $450 million. It was one of the richest archaeological finds since King Tut's tomb. And what little boy hasn't laid in bed at night and dreamed of discovering buried treasure? What big boy hasn't, hasn't had similar dreams of instant fortune and overnight wealth? I mean, why do you think folks spend their hard-earned cash on lottery tickets and sweepstakes? We've all fantasized of a fabulous fortune. And yet, what if I told you this morning that I know the whereabouts of a buried treasure that I have located a bounty that makes Mel Fisher's discovery, that makes the Georgia Lotto's mega millions look like pocket change. Yes, I have. Hey, I have unrolled a crusty old treasure map, and I've traced the lines, and I've pinpointed the X that marks the spot, and that X is the cross of Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians is the map that points to his sacrifice as the reason that we've been given every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This morning, we're going to pop the top on God's treasure chest and spend some time admiring the loot. That's what this morning's text is all about. From verses 3 through 14, the apostle Paul, the author of this letter, he takes an inventory. He itemizes our treasure trove. And quite frankly, Paul gets carried away. He gets so excited. He gets so hyped up over our blessings. In the Greek text, verses 3 through 14, 273 words are actually a single sentence. Paul writes without using a period. He doesn't even take a breath. My high school English teacher taught us that a single sentence should never be more than 30 words. If you exceed your 30 words, you've got a run-on sentence. Well, here is the run-on of all run-ons. If Paul were taking English, he might flunk, but he excels at flaunting our wealth in Christ. 
You know, a couple of weeks ago, Jose Fernandez, a rookie pitcher for the Florida Marlins, he had his first ever major league home run against our beloved Braves. But when he hit it, he stood at home plate, and he took a little too long to admire his hitting prowess. You see, baseball has an unwritten rule. You hit a home run, and we'll tip our cap. But if you stand there and flaunt, expect a response. And, of course, Brian McCann had a word or two for the rookie when he crossed home plate. In fact, Jose apologized to the Braves the next day. And yet, i got to tell you, it's been 2,000 years since Paul flaunted his blessings in Christ. And he isn't apologizing. He's still flaunting. And rightly so. Paul is still at home plate admiring the homer. And nobody begrudges him for it, for he didn't hit it. Jesus did. The blessings, our blessings, were earned by Christ. Today, let's open our Bibles here and let's go treasure hunting. We'll do a little flaunting ourselves as we, along with Paul, relish who we are and what we have in Christ. We begin this morning in verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Here's our first spiritual blessing. We're chosen. You didn't just wander into God's family or stumble onto God's blessing. Your pardon and acceptance was no accident. You see, some of us think that our salvation was a spiritual fluke, some kind of anomaly. We backed into salvation somehow. We must have just caught God in a weak moment, and he made a special exemption for us. But not so. Understand this. You were handpicked by God to be his child. He chose you. Before the foundation of the world, we're told, God peered down the corridors of history, and he picked you out of the masses of humanity that have ever walked this planet God chose you to be his child in Christ. Imagine this means that Jesus died on the cross with you in mind. That's hard to fathom. But he died on the cross with you in mind. You remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 15 verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I love verses 4 and 5 here in the Living Bible. It says, long ago, even before he made the world, God chose us to be his very own through what Christ would do for us. He decided then to make us holy in his eyes. Without a single fault, we who stand before him covered with his love. You know, when I was born, I was handed to my dad. And he loved me. I'm sure he was the proudest father in the hospital. But really, when you think about it, my dad didn't have much of a choice. It's not like he got to browse the maternity ward and pick out the one he liked. No, he was stuck with me. My father didn't have a choice, and yet he still chose me. And I bet if he had to do it all over again, he'd do it again. In contrast, though, God does have a choice. God knows each and every one of the 77 billion humans that have crossed the stage of history, and yet God still chose you. Remember when you were a kid out on the playground at recess and the teams were picked? You were always chosen last. 
it'd come down to you and Durwood. And they'd pick Durwood. You guys get Sandy. It's a sinking feeling to just sort of stand there under inspection. And with each succeeding pick, you're found lacking. Your self-worth wilts after every choice. You realize you're not wanted, that you're a nobody. Just once, pick me. Like the gradual weather erosion, cutting ruts into a hillside. Torrential rejection eats away at who you are. It's the same feeling you had the day that your wife announced that she wanted a divorce. Or the day you found out about your husband's affair. Or when your dad told you that he was leaving. Or the last time a boss called you into his office and handed you a pink slip. Some of us have never been chosen for anything. And now we view this world as cold and cruel and calloused. And in Atlanta, that may be the case. But in Christ, God wants you on his team. God has a choice. And despite your flaws and your failures and your, and your faults, he still chooses you. Comet Garrison Keeler, he recalls his times of rejection out on the playground. He writes, the captains are down to their last begrudging choices. A slow kid for catcher or someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. They choose the last ones, the scrubs, two at a time, you and you, because it makes no difference. You hear them say, if I take him, then you got to take him. Sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower. But just once, I'd like Daryl to pick me first and say, him, I want him. I was never chosen with much enthusiasm. Just once, Garrison wanted to be chosen early and enthusiastically. And yet, this is how God has chosen us. He chose us early. How about before the foundation of the world? Early enough for you? And he drafted us enthusiastically. We were handpicked in love. And here's why we were chosen, verse 4. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Realize God's choices aren't whimsical. He didn't just spin the roulette wheel or throw the cosmic dice and come up with your name. God isn't a capricious chooser. God never acts randomly and makes decisions for no reason. God never falls victim to impulse buying. God always has a good reason for everything he does. And God's purpose for us is to stand before him. To be able to stand before him. Or as the theologians call it, quorum Deo, before him. God's motives are so simple. We're the ones that complicate Christianity. We hear that God has chosen us and immediately we start thinking about performance and vocation and exaltation. God, what do you want me to do for you? God, how can I climb up in the kingdom? But That's not God's priority. He's interested in proximity and intimacy and fellowship with us. He just wants us. He wants you before him, at his side, in his arms. Sin separates us from God. He just wants us back. We're told that the first man, Adam, walked with God in the cool of the day. 
Again, the scripture tells us that Enoch and then Noah and then Abraham, they all walked with God. Genesis 17 verse 1 tells us that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. This is the greatest thing you can achieve in life, to stand before God, to walk with God. You see, we so often we assume that God is like our teenagers or like the telemarketer that calls you during dinner, that he wants something from you. That he's like the old friend you haven't heard from in years who sweet talks you for a while. And then he says that he's got a business opportunity he's sure you're interested in. That's not a God move. God just wants you. He wants you and him to hang out together. He wants you to be his child. You remember what Jesus said when he called his disciples? He said, follow me. Just come and be with me. He wants us to live life before him. And yet there's some work that has to be done between us and God to achieve quorum Deo or a before him posture. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't want to be before God, did they? They wanted to run and hide from God. They were afraid and they were ashamed to stand before God. That's why their sin had to be remedied and resolved To live before a holy God, you have to be pardoned from your sin and cleansed and clothed in his righteousness. I have to come before God holy and without blame. And I can't do that by myself, in my own power. That's why verse 4 tells us that we stand before him in love. It's because of God's grace, not our goodness. We are holy and blameless, not because of anything we've done or or can do, but because of who we are in Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, the people that were safe inside Noah's ark were sinners just like those who died in the flood. But God chose Noah's family and invited them inside. They believed God's promise and they entered the ark. They were saved by God's grace and by their faith. And this is how we're saved and declared holy and made blameless. Not because we've achieved some kind of moral superiority, but we are in our ark. We're in Christ. We've been chosen and invited and we've come. All God's blessings are maintained and obtained, not by our efforts or goodness or prowess, but in Christ. You know, a modern crime that my grandma never had to worry about was identity theft. That's right. You know, criminals, they can take your identity and all that comes with it. They can trade on your good name and on your credit score and on your online reputation. They can take advantage of all you've earned, even empty out all the wealth that you've accumulated. But realize a Christian is a person who has received an identity gift. Not identity theft, but identity gift. In Christ, we share in all that he is, in all that he's done. God now treats us just as he treats Jesus. We trade on his good name and on his score and on his reputation. Hey, this is a glorious truth. That God has chosen us in love in Christ Jesus. Treasure number one. Is we're chosen. But the blessings are just getting started. We're told in verse 5, 
having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Here's our next blessing. We were predestined to adoption. This word predestined is a strong term. It means to predetermine. Here's a definition. To decide beforehand. It's a decree of God from eternity. This means that you didn't apply for adoption. That God didn't comb through dozens of files to settle on you. No way. Before he considered anything about your character or your future or what you would become, God chose you. And for one reason only, his choice was based on the good pleasure of his will. I mean, that's like God saying to you, hey, you don't need to know why I chose you. I chose you because I chose you. All right? And since God is God, he can do just as he pleases without owing us a reason or offering us an explanation. Understand, God picked you totally unprovoked by anything in you or on your resume for no other reason than it pleased him. You see, God tapped you and he said, tag, you're it. That's incredible to me. This is the same dilemma that some of us husbands had in our relationship with our wives. We're still trying to figure out what she saw in us. Of all her possibilities, what prompted the woman to choose me? Was it momentary insanity? Was it pity? Was it blind love? Was it an optical illusion? Maybe she wanted a challenge. I mean, who knows what it was? I mean, you've just always chalked it up to one of life's many mysteries. Hey, this was certainly the case with Kathy and me. The moment she agreed to marry me, the moment she chose me, I rushed that gal to the altar as fast as I could get her there just in case she tried to change her mind. You laugh. We were engaged on July 2nd, and we got married on August 23rd. I didn't want there to be any chance for reconsideration. Realize, God predestined you to adoption before the foundation of the world. He had a long, long time to think it through and reconsider, and still, He chose you. Now, let me caution you. This is not a truth that you need to spend a lot of time mulling over and dissecting and trying to discern how this could possibly be. Theologians have tackled that for centuries, and it's still a mystery. Just take it for face value, would you? God chose you before he hung the worlds. He predetermined your adoption. You know what that means? That means he really, really wants you. Can't you leave it at that? And yet I know what you're thinking. Sandy, aren't there some verses in the Bible that teach that salvation is our choice? And yes, there are. Romans 10 tells us, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, I mean, implied is that we too have a choice, that we have to choose to be saved. You know, if we had the faith of a child, we wouldn't feel the need to reconcile these two doctrines. We just believe them both. We chose Jesus, but then we would rejoice that Jesus has chosen us. 
I mean, a little humility would teach us that we really don't have to figure it all out. We really don't. You see, the truth is that the Bible teaches both God's predestination and man's free will. Who says that we have to understand God's logic and be able to decipher all his ways? If God says it, why isn't that enough? We need to elevate divine revelation over human reason. I mean, listen to John chapter 6, verse 37. There Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's predestination. And then he says, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That's free will. You got both doctrines taught in the same verse. For centuries, men a lot smarter than you and me have argued over these doctrines. One group twists the free will verses to fit into the doctrine of predestination. The other group twists the predestination verses to accommodate free will. I say stop twisting. Just accept what the Bible teaches. It teaches both doctrines. Yes, I've been predestined. And yes, I have to choose. I like how one theologian put it. Try to explain predestination and you may lose your mind. But try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. In short, God is too big for us to figure out. I mean, some truths about God appear contradictory and illogical. But remember, we see life from a very earthbound and time-bound perspective, whereas the Almighty God's vantage point is spiritual, and it's heavenly, and it's eternal. Famous scientist and former atheist Mortimer Adler, he became a Christian late in life in his 80s. And when asked why he converted to Christ, he answered, I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world. But there are elements to it that can only be described as mystery. My chief reason for choosing Christianity was because the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if we could figure it out ourselves? If it were wholly comprehensible, then it would be just another philosophy. I agree. I don't want a God that fits right there in my pocket. A God that I can fully understand isn't a God I can fully worship. Trust me, when we get to heaven, it's all going to make sense. I mean, picture two ropes hanging out of the drop ceiling this morning up above us. One goes up, the other one goes down. It appears as if they're working oppositely. But what if you popped a few ceiling tiles and you discovered that those two ropes were actually one rope strung over a pulley? I mean, this is what we're going to find when we get to heaven. We assume that free will and God's predestination were at odds with each other. In reality, they were working together hand in hand. There's no contradiction. There's a higher logic known only to God that has been at work all along. I think we'd be wise to recall Isaiah 55 verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways, says the Lord. And it's amazing how these two doctrines, though so irreconcilable in theory, work so well in practice. I mean, if a non-Christian comes up and complains, this isn't fair, God didn't choose me, I can reply, well, how do you know? If he says, well, I'm not a Christian, I can fire back, why not? The Bible says, whosoever will may come. And if they answer, yes, but I'm not sure I want to come, then I can respond, well, then maybe you're not chosen. 
but it's not God's fault. Don't blame him. It's your fault. He said you could come if you wanted to. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 reads, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. No one can blame God on their unwillingness. I like what Henry Ward Beecher once said, The chosen are the whosoever wills, and the non-chosen are the whosoever wants. God's doctrine of predestination is meant as a comfort for us, but never as a cop-out. So, treasure number one, we're chosen. Treasure number two, we've been predestined. Now, treasure number three, we're adopted. Verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Now, here's another mind-boggling blessing. In ages past, God predetermined that he would pick you. But he didn't choose you to be his butler or his maid or his gardener, or his chauffeur. He chose you to be his son. God wanted you to be one of his kids. Can you imagine? To take his name and bear his image. To sit at his table. To share in his wealth. To have you partner with him in his work. God wrote you into his will. Can you believe it? He made you his heir, as Paul said to the Romans. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In Christ, you and I have a cut of God's family fortune. God has transformed us from sinners to sons. And the Bible describes the two ways that he's done this. First, we've been born again. When we believe the Holy Spirit, he does heart surgery. He cuts out that old sin nature and he sparks a new nature within us. One that loves God and one that loves others. The miracle of the new birth happens inside of us. We become spiritual offspring of God our Father. What a blessing that is. But we also become God's kid through adoption. God grants us his sonship in every way possible. You and I become his children spiritually through the new birth, but then legally through adoption. And the primary benefit of being an adopted child is you always know you were planned and you were wanted. You know, adoptive parents never see their child as an accident or as a mistake or as an interruption. From day one, if you're an adopted child, you are the focus of extravagant love and affection. And God has adopted you. That's how he feels about you. Let me read you an excerpt from an article by a young lady named Melissa Cope. She writes, I was adopted at birth. When I was five days old, my six-year-old brother carried me out with the caseworker to present me to my parents. I had spiky hair and I was delivered with forceps, which temporarily pinched a nerve and made my mouth hang down. So I had a crooked smile. But when my brother handed me over, he said, Isn't she pretty? Doesn't she look just like me? There are times when God intervenes in our lives in nearly flagrant ways. He interrupts the logical order of things, and he turns everything upside down in the best way possible. In my case, he took me from being an unplanned pregnancy to a pined-after chosen child in a family where I have been inordinately loved. 
And there's the gospel. Things were going along one way, but God intervened and changed everything. Not because of anything I deserved as a crooked-faced baby, but because he's God and he's good and he can. Here's a great treasure. We have been adopted by God. You see, adoption was far more common in Roman culture than it was in the Hebrew community. Adoption law gave enormous benefits to the person being adopted. First, the child's past was completely blotted out. They got a new name and a brand new start. There were no open adoptions as we know them. Second, any debts that might have been attached to that child were erased. The child became a free person. And third, as to inheritance, the adopted son was given an equal share with the family's natural heirs. In fact, Roman law so preferred adoption that in later years the law was abused. People would use it to shirk responsibility and avoid paying huge debts. The laws had to be modified. But initially, the Roman practice corresponded perfectly to our blessings in Christ. For in adopting us as his kids, God has blotted out our former identities. He's made us his child. He's given us a new identity. And he remembers our sins no more. Our debts have been erased. He's even made us co-heirs with his only begotten son, Jesus. Author Kent Hughes, he shares a letter from a young mother. She writes, I stayed with my parents for a few days after the birth of our first child. One afternoon, I remarked to my mother that it was surprising our baby had dark hair since both my husband and I are blonde. She said, well, your daddy has black hair. I replied, but mama, I'm adopted. That doesn't matter. With an embarrassed smile, she said the most wonderful words I've ever heard. I always forget. Hey, I said last week, we need to align how we see ourselves with how God sees us. For ultimately, this affects how we live our lives. Well, friends, it begins right here. This is how God sees you as his very own. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Never doubt his love for you. Those of you that grew up deprived of a father's unconditional love, I know you grew up with a hole in your heart. Sons fill that hole with rage. Daughters often fill it with promiscuity. Fatherless sons and daughters reach out for the love of the dead who walked out. By abandoning them, dad told them that they weren't worth loving. And this affects a person in unexpected ways, even after they grow up. A father defines us. He sets the trajectory for our lives. Today, there is a whole generation in our society that has this father hunger. And this is why God's adoption should be so coveted. God wants to be your father. He does. To him, you're worth it. You know, as often as I've been to Israel, you'd think my Hebrew would be a little bit better. That I'd be able to pick out at least a few words. Bokertov. Or Boker Tov it is. Because they, they always say it's, it rhymes with broken toe. So, uh, broken tov. Broken tov. Broken tov. Whatever. See how good my Hebrew is? <laughs> Boker Tov. It means good morning. That's all I know. That's it. Shalom. You know, you greet somebody. You say shalom. You say goodbye. You say shalom. I like shalom. But that's about the extent of my Hebrew speaking. 
But there is one, there is one word, one Hebrew word that my English ears always hear, always hear it. When an Orthodox Jew is walking around with his little kids in tow, you'll hear those children chirp, Abba, Abba, Abba. Always pick that out. It means daddy. It's not the formal term for father. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. And my heart is tuned to that cry, for it resonates deep down within my spirit. You see, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 explains that every Christian receives the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. When God makes us his child, he puts this cry of Abba in our spirit. I mean, open your heart to Jesus and listen. See if you don't hear the echo. Abba, Abba, Abba. Romans 8 tells us the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Hey, when God adopts you, this is the miracle that you get to experience. I believe this inner Abba exists. That God's Spirit tags your spirit and he cries, Abba. It's God's way of letting you know you're it. That you've been adopted. That you're his child. Well, there's some real treasure here. You've been chosen. You've been predestined. You've been adopted. But here's the creme de la creme in verse 6. We're accepted in the beloved. Treasure number four, we're accepted. Several weeks ago, Kathy and I, we had the opportunity to host a group of pastors and their wives. And toward the end, it got a little mushy. For all of the participants wrote down five reasons that they liked being married to their spouse. Well, one of Kathy's five was, he accepts me. You know, I was so glad that she recognizes that. For what a relief it is to know that you can be yourself, warts and all. You can be who you really are and be totally accepted by another person. What a blessing that is. What a treasure that is. I accept Kathy, but I'm not saying there aren't a few things about Kathy that I would change if I could. (laughs) There are. She sneezes really loud. Now, we're not talking about little muffled sniffles. We're talking about wake up the neighbors, supersonic sneezes. And, And... Yet Kathy knows that whatever comes out of her nose is not going to change how I feel about her. I accept her, sneezes and all. Regardless, I want her to be with me. And this is God's acceptance. Sure, there's some stuff that he intends, that he desires to change about you. He wants to purify you. But our flaws don't stop him from wanting us to be with him. Hey, you may have come to Christ addicted to alcohol or drawn toward pornography or you struggle with the same-sex attraction or you indulge in gossip or lose your temper or you tell an occasional lie or maybe you run around boasting and bragging. And does God want to change you? Of course he does. He wants to change me and you and everybody else. He loves us and he knows the destructiveness that sin can cause. 
But in Christ, in the beloved, he looks past our flaws and our failures and the chinks in our armor. And he chooses to favor us anyway because we are his in Christ. You're his. And he's not ashamed to call you his child. Yes, there's some toxic spills that need to get cleaned up. But God agrees to accept us in Christ. And his acceptance is what allows us to be all he created us to be. It gives us time and space to grow. God takes us just as we are and right where we're at, all the while working in us to make us a reflection of our Lord Jesus. You see, everything about us, from our unique personality to our spiritual maturity, it flourishes under his acceptance. It's God's acceptance that allows us to stand quorum Deo, or before him, long enough for him to melt our hearts and change our ways and alter our behavior. Let me mention a couple of mistakes that I hope you avoid. First, don't confuse acceptance with tolerance. God doesn't just shrug off or tolerate sin as if it doesn't matter. No, God accepts us in Christ despite our sin so that he can bring his help to bear and make us victorious over our sin. You see, this was the problem in the Old Testament. Sin made the Jews unacceptable to God. Thus, they lived ostracized from him. But apart from God, they lacked the power that they needed to overcome their sin. And thus, Israel sort of lived in this catch-22. Never assume that God's acceptance tolerates our sin. To the contrary, he accepts us despite our sin so that he can deal with it. And he can put an end to it and make us overcomers. Here's another mistake to guard against. Realize God's love and his acceptance are not the same. God loves everyone at all times. There's no one that God doesn't love. Did you know that everyone in hell, God loves them? There won't be anybody in hell that God doesn't love. But acceptance is different. Acceptance is a step beyond love. For you to stand before a holy God, there has to be a reason bigger than you, even greater than the sheer love of God. God needs grounds. He needs a basis for your belonging. And he has made such a basis in Christ. Everyone is loved by God, but only those who live in Christ enjoy God's acceptance. Actor Ben Kingsley he's, has two brothers who became doctors. His parents always wanted to know when he was going to give up his acting gig and get a real job. He didn't receive a lot of acceptance from his parents. Well, in 2002, when Ben was knighted by the Queen of England, it was his parents that he wanted to talk about. He said this, I told you about my parents, the fact that any kind of embrace was totally absent from my life. So to be embraced by Her Majesty... I felt like stopping people in the street, saying my mom loves me, because that's what it felt like to me, the feeling of a vacuum in the universe, the feeling of a vacuum in the universe. And this is what it feels like to be embraced and accepted by His majesty, God. Even though you're scarred and you're flawed and you're a work in progress, to know that God still accepts you as His own, what a comfort that is. 
What a reassurance that brings. When you come to Jesus, you receive a new identity. Again, it's not identity theft. It's identity gift. Your sin no longer defines you. God sees you in Christ. Suddenly, Jesus becomes a safe place where you can drop your guard. and You can admit your failures. And you can seek answers and still be accepted. We stand before God, not because of our good deeds, but because we're in Christ. This, my friends, is the glory of the gospel. And notice in verse 6, all these blessings are to the praise of the glory of His grace. God did it the way He did it, to magnify and amplify and glorify His amazing grace. Today, you... A lowly, moldy sinner. Stand before God. Coram Deo. Chosen and predestined and adopted and accepted. And you've done nothing to earn it. Nothing to warrant this kind of favor and blessing. Quite frankly, it's shocking. It's even scandalous. You wonder, how can God get away with such gratuitous favoritism? Well, there's a twofold answer to that. First, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. And second, it's grace. If God blessed, if God based his blessings on our performance, he would never find a worthy recipient. Grace bypasses the problem. Grace takes the initiative and it gives us the treasure, even though we don't deserve it. Hoping that in receiving it, we'll become appreciative enough to turn our hearts and our minds toward Him. In his book, The Reason for God, Pastor Timothy Keller, he speaks of a woman who attended his church and for the first time heard about the grace of God. But her reaction surprised him. She told Tim that grace was scary to her. Of course, he wanted to know why. She replied, If I was saved by my good works then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing God cannot ask of me. I mean, this is the glory of God's grace. When properly understood, it can't be denied. It woos us and it draws us to God. I'm sure the devil calls it unfair influence. You know, in my basketball playing days, I had this high degree of difficulty shot. It was a trick shot. I had practiced, I had prepared, I had practiced it to perfection. It was this around the back, under the leg, you know, layup. And I could do it, man. I, I had it down. And most guys didn't have this shot in their repertoire. So if I ever got into a game of horse and it came down to the final shot, I knew I had a chance. I had a shot that nobody else possessed. And this is what God is proving here. That he has a shot nobody else does. That God blesses like nobody else blesses. It's called grace. And it is a marvel to behold. No wonder Paul stands there gawking at and admiring and flaunting this home run hit by Jesus. God in Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ.
in all the treasure chest is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Let you and I be treasure hunters. Let's dig in. and Let's carry away every single blessing Jesus has for us.